0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: And a very pleasant good afternoon to your Northern California, and welcome. It is a Thursday, the 16th of November, just about four minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Lifeline. We are today on the road for what we hope will be the first of a series of very special broadcasts engaging the church, the community, the body of Christ, tackling an issue that seems to be a challenge for America these days, and that is, of course, the issue of racism. We're here live on location at our host church. We're very pleased to be here at Faith Fellowship Church, 577 Manor Boulevard in San Leandro. We will be live throughout the broadcast tonight, right up until 7 o'clock this evening. So if you don't have any plans tonight, come on down and join us. If you do have plans, Well, cancel them and join us anyway. And uh, you can check us out on the web, complete directions at kfax.com. Again, here at Faith Fellowship Church in San Leandro. Well, to put it mildly, the last three years or so have not been great ones for race relations in America. The cases of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Eric Garner in New York, Trayvon Martin in Florida as well as all the other stories, have demonstrated that the conversation about race in America still has a long way to go. And perhaps especially so inside the church. Now, let me be very clear from the start. It's not that the church isn't involved in racial reconciliation and social justice, because it is. And it's not that we haven't been involved in this fight before, because we have. And it's not that we don't know how reconciliation works, because we do. And maybe that's not the problem, because it is, and we have, and we do, but we don't. At least not the way we used to. Today we explore not just the church's historical role in racial reconciliation and social justice, but most importantly we'll attempt to reason together what steps we can and should be taking today to improve not just relations, but equality for all in America. What does God say about race? A biblical perspective on this special edition of Lifeline, coming to you live from Faith Fellowship Foursquare Church of San Leandro. Well, as we get our program underway, let's meet our special guest tonight, all of our pastors here. First, I want to introduce to you the senior pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. He is, of course, an award-winning author of five books. He co-founded Memphis Fellowship in 2003 and later founded the Kano's Movement, an organization committed to seeing the multi-ethnic church become the new normal in our world. He hosts Inspired to Live, heard daily on KFAX at 2 p.m. Please welcome the senior pastor from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View, Pastor Brian Loritz. Also with us this evening is the Senior Pastor of Life in Christ Ministry, Pastor Flavio Carvajalo. He practices law, primarily in the areas of family and immigration law. He serves as chaplain for the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department and Doctors' Hospital, and also hosts a program here on KFAX, Life in Christ, heard Sundays at 1.30 p.m. The Senior Pastor of Life in Christ Ministries of El Cerrito. A nice welcome, please, for Pastor Flavio Carvajalo. And uh, down here at my far right and your left, the gentleman that uh, certainly to the KFAX audience needs uh, no introduction. He has authored a number of books. He is the senior pastor of Grace Bible Church, of Hayward. He's a native of Northern California, born and raised in the Bay Area. He's a popular conference speaker, biblical teacher. He hosts Way of Grace, heard weekday afternoons at 12 p.m., and Mondays at 5 o'clock, he does something as well, right here on Lifeline. A nice welcome, if you would please, to the senior pastor of Grace Bible Church of Hayward, Pastor Jesse Gustand. <laughs> And uh, this gentleman to my right and your left is a very special friend. He is the senior pastor of our host church here tonight. And uh, we are thrilled to have with us a gentleman, author of six best-selling books. He teaches for Bible College at NCBC as well as Golden Gate Bible, say that in English, Golden Gate Theological Seminary. He, of course, has a program on KFAX, heard weekday mornings at 11 a.m. called I Speak Life. A nice welcome to our host pastor, Pastor Gary Mortero from C. (laughs) Faith Fellowship of San Leandro. And uh, he, since this is his house, he's obviously brought part of his fan club with him tonight as well. <laughs> Pastor Gary, let me start with you. Again, we appreciate so much the hospitality tonight to host this first of what we hope will be a series tackling this important issue. You, in fact, pastor a church here in San Leandro that is very diverse. Let's talk about this issue first to start off with of diversity and reconciliation. Do you think it's important to have one in order to achieve the other? absolutely um it's a a pleasure to
2: pastor a church that's as diverse as ours is Uh, we have people from every walk of life we have millionaires sitting next to people on welfare we have people from white black hispanic asian from the islands and uh, i think it starts from the top down that if you show acceptance of diversity then the people learn that and follow after that model and so we see it lived out right here every single week
1: Pastor Jesse, you also pastor a church here in the Bay Area that is known for its diversity. Is that diversity something that just sort of happens organically, or is it something you actually have to work at? No, you have to work at it.
3: You really do have to work at it. When we first started, we were largely um, monoethnic. We were mostly white. And um, over a 10-year period of intentional Christocentric teaching, that allows us to transcend superficial things like, you know, race or ethnicity and things of that nature. You forge uh, a common bond that allows us to live with our diversity because we're one in Christ. But that takes work. And the, the pastor and the leadership has to demonstrate that in their own walk and in their own families. And so it had to start with me. And once that happened and they saw that I have a diverse family, starting in my own family with my kids, then, then that's how the congregation shapes itself. There's a kind of connection between the DNA of leadership and the DNA of the members of the congregation.
1: Let me turn next to Pastor Flavio Carvalho. Flavio, as Pastor Jesse mentioned, he says that in his church, it initially started as predominantly being all white, and that it has gone through this transition down through the years And he makes note that part of that transition is leadership, uh, mentoring, setting the example. How important do you think that is in terms of being able to successfully bring about true diversity?
4: I agree 100%. The people have to see in every aspect of church life that we are diverse and accepting of people. However, uh, I'd have to say that diversity is not enough. The world keeps talking about diversity, but... Forgive me for being blunt. If you have a diverse group of idiots, you still have a group of idiots. (laughs) you got to go deeper than than diversity. You really need to deal with the heart issue. The problem is a heart issue. You have to heal the heart. And because of sin, we pick at each other. And we look at people's faults. And uh, we maximize their faults and minimize their gifts. So it's really important that we go to the heart of the issue, which is the heart, and deal with the sin issue.
1: I I love that perspective because it, it dovetails nicely into the question that I want to pose next to Pastor Brian Loritz. Brian, you have pastored in the South, you have pastored in areas as diverse as New York City, where you recently were a transplant from, as well as now here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think Flavio's observation that there seems to be a lot of emphasis in trying to achieve diversity, but I have to wonder then, at the end of the day, from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, is diversity then the, the end point, or is that actually just the starting point?
5: No, I think the end point is I want to see people fall in love with Jesus Christ. And I want to see true transformation happen. You know, I grew up in in the South, in Atlanta. And I'm grateful for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and all that he did. Because of him, I can sit on any seat of a bus that I want to. I can sleep in any hotel that I want to. But... But the shortcoming of the civil rights movement is, while it could change laws, it could never change hearts. And that's where the Church of Jesus Christ has to come in. But the problem is the historic sin, and, and I would take issue, I don't think the church holistically in our country has ever done a good job of race relationships. So speaking from an African-American perspective, The black church historically exists because the white church refused to be the church and settled for being the white church. And that's where the problem comes. So we're dealing with spiritual warfare. We're dealing with principalities and powers. But the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. And greater is he who's in us than he that is in the world. So we have,
1: yes, you can applaud. Absolutely. There's great wisdom, I think, to that observation because while we have made strides in certain areas and certain parts of the country geographically or perhaps in certain denominations, what Pastor Lorette says at the baseline is absolutely true, and that is largely the black church today exists because – and I think whites in America need to own up to this. The black church in America exists today because the white church wouldn't let them in. Pastor Gary, prior to coming on the dais tonight, you shared a story with me that I think helps to, in many ways, illustrate this and illustrate not only part of the problem, but the sin nature of what's behind all of this issue of racism and division within the church and with our country as a whole. Speak to that, if you would, please. Yeah, we just had a gentleman from West Monroe, Louisiana, preach
2: here two weeks ago and did a fabulous job. White guy. Um... Pastor is a very diverse church, but he was telling us that 13 years ago, the deacons would line up at the door when he first became the pastor there, and the deacons would line up at the door, and if anybody of color came to the front of the church, they would say, Oh, no, 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 your church is down the street. Well, in those 13 years, and again, going back to leadership, what he began to demonstrate was acceptance of everybody out of Romans 15. It says, accept one another, then as Christ accepted you. And so he began to demonstrate that. And he just performed last year the first interracial marriage in the history of that church, which is his white son marrying an African-American young lady. And so that's how far they've come. And so now it's a very diverse church. It's up to 2,200 people. And uh, it starts from the leadership downward, but the heart's got to change. The heart has got to change. I mean, prisons are diverse, right?
4: Amen.
2: but there's all kinds of racism and sectarianism going on. And so the heart has got to be right. And we as leaders have to stand up and preach the acceptance. I mean, when, when Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles, the word Gentiles is a word that means nations. So Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles, the nations, a diversity of people. And he and Barnabas pastored the first church in Antioch, and it was a very diverse church. It wasn't just Jewish. It was made up of every kind of pagan you could imagine. And so they demonstrated that kind of love, and that's how we have to. I think what uh, Pastor Loritz said, though, is true. um, Because of the racism in America by the white side of the church... How they got away with that and how they found out to be biblically accurate, I don't know. But we're doing our best to change that
1: now. If you've just tuned in, thank you. If you're just tuning in here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline, we're broadcasting live today from Faith Fellowship Foursquare Church in San Leandro. And hey, if you're in the East Bay Area, we invite you to come on down. It's just a quick hop off the 880 Freeway from Washington Boulevard, located at 577 Manor Boulevard here in San Leandro. We'll be live tonight until 7 p.m. And we've got a great panel of guests tonight as we wrestle through these questions of race relations from a biblical perspective. I want to turn back to some of the comments that were made earlier by uh, Pastor Loritz. It was once commented or observed, and this is, my goodness, 50-plus-something years ago by Martin Luther King, Jr., that America is no more segregated than it is Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Speak to that, if you would. Um, Yes, but I don't – listen, I I say
5: this humbly. I don't think Dr. King's statement goes far enough. So if people primarily come to church out of relationships – then sanctuaries just reflect dinner tables. So, sanctuaries will always give us a window into people's interpersonal relationships with each other. And there is comprehensive culpability when it comes to this issue. Um, you know, Af- because the African American church has been the only institution that was ever ours. And parenthetically, I I don't believe every church needs to be multi-ethnic. I think every church needs to reflect its community. Um, But because the African-American church has been the only thing that's been completely ours, and having pastored in the South for years, there is this sense among my own people where, hey, on my discretionary time, I work with them all week, I don't want to be around them. And I would say that that's an attitude that's not in full alignment with the heart of Jesus. So I don't say this to pick on one group of people. We just have never historically played well together, and that's reflected in segregated churches.
1: And maybe one of the big issues at play here is that we sometimes play church. We can go through the motions of shaking hands and tolerating people Sunday morning for an hour But if the friendships that we seem to have in church on Sunday are not a reflection of the friendships that we have Monday through Saturday, again, back to that who's around our dinner table concept, does that then divulge the fact that maybe even as we try to... um, Pat ourselves on the back for our attempts at diversity, then in fact we're not really diverse or accepting at all?
5: Yeah, so I, I think um, I think Dr. Corey Edwards, who's a Jesus-loving sociologist, Ph.D. at The Ohio State University, one of the things she says, and she re- researches what makes multi-ethnic churches work, she says even within multi-ethnic churches... Um, there is, at the most superficial layer, what she calls the multicolor, multiethnic multi-ethnic church. And the analogy she uses is a lot of multi-ethnic churches are like the NBA All-Star game, game. Where you get people who come from different teams show up to the event. But once the event is over, they go back to their own teams. So even just because your church is multi-ethnic does not really mean people are really sharing lives with each other. In fact, for some people, the multi-ethnic church is just something that they can name drop. It gives them street cred. I go to this church. And in an age of diversity, how cool I am. But we, can't, we can never settle for just uh, the event on Sunday morning There legitimately has to be the sharing
1: of lives. You anyway, know, It also comes down to a level of that notion of iron sharpening iron, that you can hide in a large... Diverse church, and gain the street cred as you point out, and yet at the end of the day, not have any true, genuine one-on-one personal relationships with people of other racial backgrounds. Jesse Gustand, how difficult is it to help foster that sense of the intimate relationship, the iron sharpening iron, getting the chance to know each other in larger churches as we have here in the Bay Area, where it's easier for people to hide than to be genuine when it comes to their relationships? Right. This is where radical
3: theology must be demonstrated, preached, proclaimed, um, uh, in some ways enforced from the pulpit down in terms of the nature and character of God in Christ. Um, Christ didn't tolerate superficial religion, and we can't either. And so until we really do understand what it means to be a new creature in Christ, um, we will stop short of an authentic Christianity at the door of the church, go back outside, and then go back into our little ghettos of, of different balkanized ethnic groups, But the gospel has to penetrate through and through until we are living a systemic Christian life because racism is systemic. Now, what that's going to require is education because, you know, face it, we don't like truth. Um, The word racism is really a fictitious concept, a construct built by slave owners. So slavery produced racism, racism produces discrimination, discrimination produces prejudice. Until we get to the rock bottom of what started this whole thing as a national racist climate, um, we're not going to be ready to confess, repent, return to God, and then be transformed. That's hard work. And it requires pastors to be sensitive but also knowledgeable and then begin to teach their congregation the difference between authentic Christianity and Christ and religion that can tolerate either uh, congregations that are all white, congregations that are mixed with all sorts of ethnic groups. But the big word hypocrisy, hypocrisy still reigns because we're not truly authentic Christians at the level of relationship. And that has to occur.
1: Pastor Gary? Yeah,
2: I just wanted to um, ungeneralize what Pastor Brian was saying, that I don't feel like our churches like going to an all-star game. I think people have a choice of where they want to go to church. And especially in the Bay Area, there's awesome preachers up and down the corridors here. So if, if they wanted to go to an all-black church, they surely could because there's a lot of great black preachers. If they wanted to go to an all-white church, they could. But one of the statements that I hear frequently from people that visit and stay here is that we love the diversity and we want to be in a diverse church like that. So I don't think it's a universal thing. Now, as far as having lives outside of these four walls, Man, that's tough in and of itself if you're a
1: monochromatic
2: church, right? I mean, know. it's hard. People are busy with their lives. and it, it can be phony. It can be phony. But I like the fact that people choose to come here because it is diverse and they want to be part of something that is different. Um, but if you look at racism in the church... If I'm not mistaken, Acts chapter 6 was the very first church problem they had, and it was racism, or it was a distinction between one group of people versus another group Absolutely. at the early church level full of the Holy Spirit. And so it's in the human nature. Are we are going to fully eradicate it? I don't think ever fully because we still have a sin nature. Uh, there's a difference between people. But our job as pastors is to continue to love and accept and demonstrate that to people, correct them when we see them behaving or treating people in a different kind of way
1: and do the best we can to show the love of Christ. And you know we're reminded in scripture that Christ died for both Jew and Gentile and I think the recognition, yes, I mean to, to address the elephant in the room yeah we tend to sometimes hang with our own because we enjoy the same kind of food, we speak the same language we're part of the same culture, things of this sort. So there's I think to a a naturalness about being drawn or attracted or gravitating toward our own kind. That said, there's also a tremendous blessing from the experience of others and a richness in all of that. Not just culturally, but I think even with you look at the diverseness of the body of Christ. I mean, you know, Paul, the number one persecutor of Christians, Turns out, the guy that writes the bulk of the New Testament, right? Talk about God's sense of humor. Jesse, you said something a moment ago about the importance of education, and they're going to think we got together on this because as you said that, I was thinking, well, knowledge, and my people perish for lack of knowledge. And part of the problem here is I think we don't know each other. And Pastor Carvajalo, I want you to speak to this because the other elephant in the room is, this is not just the problem of the white church and the black yes. church, but in 2017, Latinos in particular are feeling especially put upon. I had it said to me one day by a brother that put it like this. He said, it seems as if it's okay to go after everybody that happens to be Latino because of fear. We cloak it into the guise of, well, we want to make sure we're engaging in border security. We don't want people doing illegal things in our country. And yet that's just sort of a thinly veiled attempt at what really at the core is racism. And I would argue that part of the issue that we have afoot here, both inside and outside the church, is a lack of knowledge of each other. And so therefore we, we fear each other. We fear that Latinos are going to come in here and take our jobs and suddenly we're going to be homeless. We fear that black guys are going to come in and take over the country and might even, I don't know, run for president one day, right? <laughs> so how do we go about tearing down those walls of ignorance that leads to this, this senseless aspect of fear? Pastor Flavio. Well, I
4: think one of the first things we, the church, need to do is realize that God called us to be the head and not the tail. Amen. And we had to lead in solving the problem. We have to be problem solvers as a church. And I think we're buying too much of the ideology of the world, of the, of the um, propaganda of the world. Um, again, going back to the issue of diversity, it's not enough to put ten different nationalities or ethnicities in a room and expect that that's going to solve the problem. That is not the solution. We have to go to the core issue. And the church is the only, the only organization that can do that which is, treat the heart with the gospel. The gospel is very simple. For God so loved the world. There's no distinction in John 3.16. God loved the world. Jesus died for the world. Whosoever believes in Him can be saved. So I think we need to get away from the, the finger pointing and the labeling of each other. I think we're buying into the ideology of the world. The world labels us as whites, blacks, Hispanics. In our church, we tell people, we're not a white church, we're not an American church, we're not a Brazilian church, we're not. We are a Christian church, and we don't look at people by the color of their skin or their ethnicity. We acknowledge it, but it's not what unites us. We're human beings, you know. I, I first time I said this in church, there was a, um, a gasp. People were were shocked, but I said I am against interracial marriages, and everybody going. Huh. I said the only race you should marry is a human race as long as we're within the human race you're okay there's only one race it's the human race and when we when we buy into the ideology of the world that divides us it's the strategy of hell to divide and conquer if we realize we're human beings we're sons of adam and eve and through jesus christ we can become children of god and we preach for god so loved the world Red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. I think that appeals to people. When they walk into a church and they realize that they don't have to wear a label, I'm not the Latino quota, I'm, I'm just another human being meeting other human beings and, uh, and having fun in the process. Uh, So in our church we, we don't label people by their ethnicity we just welcome them all and we hug them all and we love them all and we preach the gospel to them all understanding that the gospel will change your heart it's impossible to love God and not love your neighbor so if we preach the gospel and people are transformed the Holy Spirit begins to do some funny things inside of us and all of a sudden we don't care about labels anymore. Let's let people be people and teach them to love people unconditionally, I think.
5: If I could jump in here real quick. Please, Please do. The homogeneous unit principle is highly pragmatic and highly sinful. Um, this idea of birds of a feather flock together, Bill Heibels, by the way, who built his church on that, is on record for apologizing for the mm-hmm. sin of that view. Because what the homogeneous unit principle, which was the bedrock of the church growth movement— said, here's the best way, efficiently, to build a church. Find your demographic, cater to your demographic. Mm -hmm. That's not the way of Paul. When Paul walks into a town to plant a church in Acts, he always has two questions. Where's the synagogue? I want to preach the gospel to the Jews. And then where the Gentiles hang out? I want to preach the gospel to them. If he were to subscribe to the homogeneous unit principle... Now that he's got Jews and Gentiles, get saved in Athens, Ephesus, so on and so forth. Peter Wagner and those boys would have told told him, start two separate churches. One on the north side of town for the Jews, one on the south side of town for the Gentiles. That's not what Paul does. Paul takes these two polarizing groups and puts them into one church. Why? Because for Paul, the number one sign of vertical reconciliation is now you are pursuing horizontal reconciliation with each other within the theater of the church. So we've gotta be clear on that. The homogeneous unit principle may be human nature, may be pragmatic, it is unbiblical, and should be repudiated. The second thing that we gotta be very careful of is colorblindness, and I don't think you're saying this, colorblindness flies in the face of a robust biblical anthropology. What do I mean by that? To be made in the Imago Dei is not just my spirit, it is also my skin. Psalm 139 says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, Mm -hmm. all of me. Revelation chapter five, John says I looked up into heaven and I saw people from every nation, tribe and tongue. How could he tell differences among the nations on sight unless he saw difference in skin color. So ethnicity is not a fruit of the fall. It is a part of the divine created mandate that will be retained and redeemed in heaven. Right.
3: Yes.
1: Exactly. Amen. Let me, uh, let me pull Pastor Jessica Stand in here for a comment.
3: Right. Now, this is what I meant by um, educating the people of God about faulty constructs. So, like, we don't, I don't call a black person uh, a black race and a white person a white race. The ethnosis determine determined the New Testament. Goyim has determined the Old Testament. God only recognizes three categories of people, and two of them become a third category when they come to know Christ, Jews and Gentiles. That's what Brian was talking about. What Brian recovered from what I think that Flavio was trying to say is that there is value in our different ethnic distinctions. And so uh, Flavio was kind of dealing with what I would call an eschatological uh, conclusion of, of sanctification. But there's a process. And in that process of coming to find our unity in Christ, we can enjoy our diversity of ethnic groups. I'll give you an example. So like when we first started Grace 100 years ago, no, it was 20 years ago, it was largely Caucasian. And I love my Caucasian brothers and sisters. But they they... They didn't cook that well. <laughs> stay with me for a second. Stay with me for a second. Just slapped off beat and all kind of crazy <laughs> stuff. I know what you mean, <laughs> bro. But just stay with me for a second. Stay with me um, um, but they had their qualities. And then when God started bringing in my Latino brothers, which I love very well, my Latino brethren, um, by, by culture, serve. My Filipino brothers and sisters, by nature, serve. My African-American brothers and sisters, they serve with a swag, okay? So, so after a while, church be, our church became a service-oriented church because of the diversity. Initially, it was much more intellectual. My Caucasian brothers did not clap. Y'all come to Grace now, we clapping, you know, every third line. Um, and they're still trying to get on the 2-4 and the 4-4. And the, the four four. <laughs> now here's what's going on, and I think, I think uh, Brian captured it well, and I still think it has to be worked through on a um, historical level to understand what the tensions are. Here's what's going on. Because we love Christ, We come together and experiment unity in the context of fellowship and diversity. And we try to make that thing work. We try to bring in a symphonic component to the diversity so that the worship experience is comprehensive. It's not lopsided. It's not bizarre. I believe in the regulatory principle of worship. I don't believe in dead worship, but I also don't believe in worship that's chaotic. So with all of the different ethnic groups, we will have the intellectual side, propositional side, emotional side, enthusiastic side, but it will have that kind of balance where everybody can sense that their Imago Day rooted in their own ethnicity is acknowledged, as Brian said, he made it very clear. Revelation augments that in the ch- fifth chapter, every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue giving glory to the Lamb because he has redeemed us and, and that didn't go away. So I think what we're talking about is just becoming better at our diversity among ourselves in a way that does not um, deny the glory of God in Christ that's going to draw the people on the outside in because here's the problem. and We've got to talk about that. I don't want to dominate the time right here. But the problem is our people are a product of the impact of the gospel evangelically, but also of our cultures. Meaning when our people come in, they are experiencing um, uh, racism, discrimination, and prejudice as part of a collective system that we have all uh, been a part of as Americans since the time of slavery. It has been propagandized. It has been culturized. It has been put into our entertainment forms, our education forms. So we are constantly fighting against it. If it doesn't become part of your teaching ministry, your your proclamation, your priestly ministry in the church, so that healing is taking place on a profoundly deep level, we don't rise up above it. To enjoy ourselves in Christ authentically. So we have to teach that racism comes from slavery and that discrimination comes from racism and that prejudice comes from discrimination. And those are distinct categories. They're not all the same thing. They have to be understood. And what the uh, liberal and progressive uh, parts of our society has done is unearth a lot of this. To help us see we still got these struggles going on. So church folks have to be just as sharp as secular folks about the cutting edge information that's out there around the conflicts that are going on in the world politically. And then we have to use a gospel solution to the problem first for us and then for them.
1: All right. Now, I want to come to a point that you made, Jesse, because you several times mentioned to the point of the need for healing. Yeah. And there is no doubt about the fact that a lot of pain has been caused and created down through the years. Some of it is historical. Some of it is systemic. Some of it is learned behavior that has gone on and continues to this very day. But in order for healing to take place, that necessitates forgiveness and we know certainly from a biblical perspective at the very core of the ability of mankind to be reconciled unto the Father, it is because of the function of grace in the form of forgiveness in this case, forgiveness being extended to us, that grace unmerited, that we might be forgiven of our sins, and therefore, because of that product of grace and forgiveness, reconciled unto the Father so, does it become then an issue that we need to, as we talk this thing through in relationship to the racial question to begin hearing each other's stories and as we do so then be able to recognize well I have sinned against you and because I've sinned against you I need to ask for your forgiveness and as you forgive me we begin to experience reconciliation and healing comes about as a result of that, I think far too often perhaps part of the problem here, and I'm going to ask Pastor Loritz or any of you to, to address this, part of the problem maybe is that we're not taking the time to hear each other's stories. For example, we've watched a lot of the Black Lives Matters protests taking place across the country and, and once again revived not just after Ferguson, but, but I think that Charlottesville helped to amplify all of that. And, and, and as I have viewed that, I see a body of people that say, You're not hearing me. We're not sharing each other's stories. I I had an experience. This is 20 years ago. Many of you will know who Dr. Jerry Buckner is. He hosts a program on KFAX, Contending for the Faith. He's been a dear friend for many, many years. It was Jerry Buckner who first introduced me to the concept of DWB. Everybody knows what a DWI is, right? How about DWB? I see a couple of hands there. Driving while black. And he explained to me his experiences of driving his 1960-something restored Chevrolet Hooptie in Tiburon and being pulled over by the police again and again and again, not because he was breaking any laws or driving fast or doing anything untoward, but simply he seemed to be out of place in Tiburon because, as the police there at the time knew, no black man should be driving an old 1967 Impala through Tiburon at 10 o'clock at night. And he had repeated confrontations with the police until ultimately he had to sit down with the chief of police and say, I live here, I own a home here, this is my neighborhood, can you please stop this engagement? And that was the first time I'd ever heard of that concept. But boy, I sure learned a lot in hearing his story that could then heighten my sense of sensitivity and awareness And so I wonder if maybe for any of our panelists is not part of the problem here that we're not hearing each other's stories to fully recognize the degree of injury or harm that has taken place. And as a result, there's no real forgiveness going on because I don't know that it is that I've done anything wrong to be asked for forgiveness for in the first place. Any of our panelists,
5: please. Yeah, I would say the secret sauce to all this is relationships. So if you take Acts chapter 10… It's what scholars call the Gentile Pentecost. It's the first time in the book of Acts where this Holy Spirit falls in mass on a group of Gentiles. He uses a Jew, Peter, to take the gospel there. But what's fascinating is God understands that Peter has some very real ethnic biases in his heart, i.e. he's racist. To fish that out of him, he doesn't have him read a book. He doesn't have him go to an event where there's a panel on race. He has him stay in the home of a guy named Simon the Tanner. Now this is telling. A Tanner works with dead animals. No good Jew would work with a dead animal. So Simon is a Gentile. So God says, Peter, you got some racism in you that's going to block my work that I want to do through you. We got to address with that, address that. So I got to put you in an uncomfortable situation by having you do life with someone who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like you. That's how I'm going to get at this. You know, I can take you to Reggie Williams' classic work, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. You don't really hear this narrative about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but in his early 20s, he comes to the United States. It's the 1930s. To get a fellowship at Union University, at, at Union Seminary in Harlem, and he joins a black church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, joins a black church, this white man does it 's there that he says, "I hear the gospel and all of its wonderful social implications. He teaches Sunday school, falls in love with Negro spirituals. Bonhoeffer says, i don 't go back to Europe and stand up for the Jews until I first do life." in the African-American church. What changed him wasn't necessarily more information from a book. What changed him was getting enmeshed in a network of relationships. Every time I'm tempted to write off white people, I think of the white men in my life that I walk with, that, hey look, I sit in duck blinds with. Yes. I go duck hunting a in January. duck hunter, baby. Love Come it. on now. Love it.
2: Okay, you got a new Love white it. friend right <laughs> now. It. You got a new white friend.
5: Love it. Love it. Love it. But my, I'll, I'll say this and I'll close. My friend Larry Acosta says, we, we hurt in isolation, but we heal in community. My, my friend Eric Mason says, um, proximity breeds empathy. Distance breeds suspicion. Mm-hmm. It's easy to write off people you ain't doing life with. We have to get in life with each other.
2: Let me just make a point with that. Well said. Um, You know, you were talking about Peter going to Cornelius' house, and then he had to go to Simon the Tanner's house. And it still didn't eradicate the racism. Because later on, Paul had to rebuke him to his face for being a hypocrite. And so that's what I was trying to say, is I don't know that we'll ever fully eradicate every fiber of it, but we can sure take the lead as pastors and show our people that we're going to accept each other, we're going to love each other. You know, I was thinking as you guys were talking about churches here in the Bay Area, the demographic that we do have. Um, in, in a demographic like this, there still can be an all-black church. There still can be an all-white church. For example, we, had, uh, we started a Spanish ministry in this church. Well, now they're their own church. The reason why they're all Spanish is because they speak only Spanish. Right. So they're going to be just a Latino church. Yes. And so but if, if the reason that people don't go to the white church or the black church or the diverse church is because I don't like them and I don't get along with them and I don't want to be with them. That's where we have a deep
3: problem in the church. Right. And let me say uh, along with what Brian was saying about the, the, the distance proximity thing. That's the that's where the, the devil works uh, in his propaganda against unity. If he can keep us across the street from each other, he can whisper suspicions, false notions, uh, faulty ideas, and and cause us, when we are weak in faith, um, to to maintain that kind of uh, separation. You see this in the South all the time. I was part of a a denomination in fellowship for many years, uh, and when I discovered that uh, this particular denomination were comfortable with the black churches who were of the same denominational uh, ilk, were right across the street, and they made no effort to cross the lines. And a lot of this was rooted in the fact that they are churches in the South. They just didn't want to do it. They just didn't want to do it. And and I said that that's untenable. It's untenable that we would be comfortable merely with our own ethnic group because we are comfortable with them, because what you're doing is you're creating a recipe for not growing. You cannot grow. You cannot grow. You cannot grow without the peculiarities and distinctives of other ethnic groups. You just cannot do it. And so what the church is is an opportunity to grow up into Christ in all things by that experimentation of multi-ethnic persons in proximity. Going back to justify Flavio, it's okay when our churches are mono-ethnic because it's cultural, because it's part of where you live. But they should also want to grow up into Christ at the level that when any non-Latino or non-other comes in, that they are so ready to embrace them and benefit from them and vice versa, that now we are still functioning as, as a church. I think sometimes the church gets too comfortable with collapsing into a comfort zone mentality because of mono
1: all right, there's another important point here, Jesse, and, and, and that is this. There's sometimes, I think, the sense in the church that it's one and done. For example, there are those that have come to Christ who hear old things passed away, new creation in Christ Jesus, therefore it should all be good. And then 30 years later you discover that you have had aught against a parent who did something to you, and this is gnawed at you, and it has impacted your relationships with others Most importantly, most critically, is stood between your relationship with the Lord because of this existing sense of of the hurt, of the the bitterness, the root of bitterness that has been able to take a hold because there's this unresolved issue that's been allowed to sit there and fester for years and years. So when we speak of the issue of racial reconciliation in the church and bringing about healing, uh, we sometimes like to say, well, let's just get over it. I've, I've heard people say, for example, in the white community, the blacks go on and on about this slavery thing. My goodness, that was in 1864. Why won't they just get over it? Never stopping to acknowledge the pain that was caused and the aspects of that pain that in some ways have filtered down to this very day because of the systemic impact that that brought about. And so as a result, we try to rather bring up the pain so that we can address it and bring about healing. You go to a doctor, if you have an infection, the doctor says, guess what? What's happened to your arm is so bad now, we're going to have to cut out part of the healthy flesh in order to save the rest, you say, doctor, no, 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 that's going to hurt. That's going to cause pain. But sometimes in the process of healing, we have to allow ourselves to recognize the very underlying pain that is there in order to engage in forgiveness. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, my, um, so my
5: wife, when, when we first got married, I'm talking the early months of marriage, and we were out, and I'd order an occasional glass of wine. She would immediately shut down, mutter something under her breath, and then, you know, I would respond in a snarky way with some kind of line. If the government lets me do it, then sure enough, my wife should let me do it. And, and Jesus, that, after all, yeah, at first yeah, miracle of yeah, we changing yeah, water yeah. to wine, right, right. Yeah. All the verses. You know, Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach the whole night. Um, I can keep going. I, of, yeah, yeah. I can keep going. By the way. Anyways, of. it's just an it's just an illustration. It didn't go well. Um, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> But one, one time she said, one time she said, listen, everyone who I've ever loved, talking about her parents and other family members, has abused And now she starts to share her story. Well, that, that now totally changes the texture of things. Because now that I start to get into the pain of what it's like to grow up in the home of an alcoholic and you never know what you're going to get in when you when that door opens up and she's talking about her mom being passed out and so on and so forth. Of course, I don't say to her, hey, I'm not your mom. Get over it. That happened 20 years. Just just get over it. Just just No, if I'm going to live with my wife in an understanding way, if we're going to pull off this thing called oneness. I need to hear all of her story, even the painful parts of it. That's the same thing here that we're talking
1: about. So at the end of the day, then, if we're going to see this process of racial reconciliation begin and actually take root and bring forth good, sustainable fruit, it's going to be more than just trying to create a congregation that looks like the community in diversity. Because you can invite all the neighbors up and down the block and say on Sunday morning, gee, how diverse we were, and then we all go back home. Nobody knows each other. Nobody's learned from each other's stories. There's no no exchange of experiences to really understand what's going on here in the big picture called relationship. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, when, when we're told, confess our sins one or another and so fulfill the law of Christ, I wonder if part of the perspective on that is not the beginnings of dealing with this issue of racism that is so deeply rooted, not just in the country and community as a whole, but specifically inside of the church. But Craig,
4: if I may interject here again, we've got to go to the, to the heart of the issue, which is the heart of man Amen. and the sin issue. It is not a black and white issue. Now, if Let's, let's address the, the elephant in the room. Slavery scarred the United States of America. As a um, Latino, as a person of Latin background, I don't share that history with my black brethren. And I understand that there's a, there's a wound there that, that needs to be healed and, and dealt with. But if we're talking about racism, it goes far beyond slavery. I don't think slavery caused racism. I, I I beg to differ. Because no, it's a symptom. Yeah. And and it's uh, historically slavery has not been built on uh, based on race on race. It was based on one people conquering another. Over half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves, not because of over a certain color, but because the Roman Empire conquered them. And that's historically been true. And so it goes beyond the issue of race. It's, it's an issue of the heart. Whoever dominates, whoever has the biggest piece of pie, will have the greatest opportunity to allow sin to, to dominate. And it happened with the church, sadly. When we became the majority, we ended up with the Inquisition. The problem is sin. And we have to deal with the sin problem. We have to confront. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's why I keep saying, we've got to go keep going back to the gospel. Salvation and discipleship preaching the gospel and then growing Acts chapter 2 to me is where reconciliation begins the problem becomes apparent in Genesis chapter 6 with the Tower of Babel they begin to speak different languages and they split up well God's solution to reverse that is Acts chapter 2 the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because now people are hearing in their own language mind you the wonders of God, and they're coming to church to hear this message. They've been drawn to the message, and the message of the gospel will draw people, especially in a place where the Holy Spirit is free to act, where we, we tear down the walls and let the Holy Spirit have his way. We don't come with our preconceived notions, and we don't impose on the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, when you hear the Holy Spirit being mentioned, if you substitute Holy Spirit for Andrew or John or Mary, you, it won't change the sentence. You realize the Holy Spirit is a person. And if we allow the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit, to be the counselor, and to be in control of our services in our churches, and allow Him to work in the heart of man with the preaching of the gospel, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, and I, I hate to be uh, sound like a broken record, but I think we're buying into the world's ideology. We are supposed to bring the solution, and the solution is the gospel. It's that simple. For God so loved the world. Let's stop with the, with the labels and, and dividing, us, uh, uh, um, dividing the church into labels and denominations, understanding that those, those differences are going to be there and celebrating them even. But let's deal with the issue. The issue is, am I avoiding you because I hate you? Am I avoiding you because I'm afraid of you? That's sin. Let's deal with that. But let's understand that differences are, are going to be there. And let's celebrate those differences. You know, in our church, one of the things that happened several years ago, we were having a potluck dinner. And because we have people from different parts of the world, um, people brought food of their, you know, of their background, of their, their culture. And so here I am. I love to eat. So here I am serving myself and helping myself to all the food. And people behind me start laughing. And they were Filipinos, and they were all laughing. And I started laughing with them. And I kept walking. At the end of the line, I asked them, "Why were you laughing?" And they said, "Pastor, you just put your well, put dessert on top of your food." <laughs> I had no idea it was dessert. It looked like fruit to- <laughs> But you know, we, we we laughed about it. We and and there was there was no animosity. There was no there, nobody was putting anybody down. We understood a difference, and I just did something that was really stupid in their culture. But we were able to walk away and laugh at it and then go into service and worship together.
1: I think relationship
4: and dialogue is important. Going back to what what you said, relationship and and dialogue is important. But I think we have to get beyond the labels and the strategies of the world to overcome our differences. Can I ask you a question? Um. I don't know if I'll be able to answer it, but yeah.
5: No, no, no. What you said is exactly what a group of clergy said in the spring of 1963 when they penned an open letter to Dr. King. So Dr. King, they were were embarrassed, and this is clergy here, Alabama clergy, they were embarrassed that King and his lieutenants had come to Birmingham Mm -hmm. to stand up for issues, of course, that were affecting the African-American community. Their appeal was just be patient, let things run its course... And in effect, let's focus on the heart. Would you have been a part
4: of that group? Is, is, am I hearing no. you right? I, no. I just want to get clarity here. No. Yeah. Because I believe in civil rights. And I believe, and that's where the legal system is. But again, going back to Romans, the government carries a sword to punish evildoers. That's the role of the government is to punish evil, to restrain evil. The role of the church is to promote good. So let the government do what it does, which is restrain evil. So to answer your question, I am all for civil liberties, and I thank God for Martin Luther King, Luther King Jr. I'm enjoying liberties because of his work and, and the others. But that as a
5: church, would you have jumped in on that? As far as on the actual marches? Oh, yes, then, absolutely. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, got it. absolutely. But,
4: but that would be that
3: would have been because of what I recognize in your commentary, Brother Flavio, you either are ignorant of or have decided not to look into. And this becomes a problem when we um, kind of want to get to the answer re- really quickly and not allow a process by which clarity can bring to the table why people hurt. For instance, you, you said, you know, we want to be careful about the labels of the world. Well, you got to deal with them. Uh, and then we don't want to be inconsistent with that either. If we want to uh, promote our own ethnicity, uh, then at the same time, disregard uh, general secular terms, you're going to have a problem. For instance, I would challenge you or anyone here to look up the term racism, and you would discover that racism is in fact a construct that came out of slavery, that, that slavery before uh, British... European American slavery was the kind of slavery that you're talking about. Your uh, Roman empire domination over people groups, even uh, domination of Africans over other Africans, that's all been going on. But when we talk about racism in the context of the 20th and 21st century, It is definitely rooted in slavery with regards to black people. And if you overlook that, you're going to be talking apples and oranges. So you really want to be careful about how you express a term. So as I'm sitting here, I want to make sure that we understand if I'm speaking to thousands and thousands of black people who are baby boomers or before, who know something about the systemic uh, discrimination and prejudice and and strategically established terminology of white versus black when that was n- n- neither a category um, before uh, slavery in, in Europe and America but became one out of the convenience of creating a conflict between indentured white servants and chattel blacks, then then you're not ready for this conversation because it was that particular conflict that exacerbated what black people are dealing with today and that's why my brother on the end is nodding his head. you got to know the distinction of those categories. Otherwise, even though your motive is right about let's get past those terms, you can't get past those experiences because they still are part of the ongoing struggle today. Think about this for a moment with me. Think about it with me. Right. Hold, on. Hold on for a second. But if- Hold on for a second. Okay. So I'm, I'm amazed because one brother in the NFL puts his knee down on the ground, starts a whole movement that doesn't end And people are going, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? It's because we're not defining the terms as they originally were designed with the motive behind which they were designed, and yet we're still using these terms. For instance, if you call yourself white, and I call myself black, which we are neither when we deal with it on a biological, biological, genetical level, we are not white, black. But that terminology is just... Filled with the potency of its design from the days in which it was utilized, so we have to be careful to know how history is still working itself out in the present, and make sure that we fight that battle with some understanding. Otherwise, what you say, what you mean, will will go over the heads of knowledgeable black
4: people. I beg to differ, and I, th- your point is well taken. Okay, and I. And I, I so respect have, have what you, you said. done the etymology on the word white yet? Well, but wait a minute. Is slavery is not a black and white issue? Slavery is going on in the Middle East right now. There's, ISO, there are slaves all over the world, ISO from imposes, China all the
3: way through it. But it, right. there, it's a, it was a difference. The Middle Easterns them and
4: impose now. slavery on people because of their religion, on their own people. So it's not about race, it's about a
2: dominant group taking over power. But I think those are two different things. The That's dominant exactly right. group yeah. taking over another people. Yeah, group I, th- I they think can
5: context is helpful here. So you're exactly right. A white and a you're black. Exactly right. For
2: example, my associate again, he's black, and I, being raised in Oakland, I, I learned some of their sensitivities. And so we go hunting every year, and we would go to Montana, outside, way out in Montana, and we'd pull into a little small town. Well, he'd be afraid to get out of the car. Absolutely. And I said, "What's wrong?" He goes, "Man, it's all white people here, man." <laughs> <laughs> well, conversely, but, on but the other on. side, hold on, on the, on the other side, I was the only white guy on Oakland High basketball team. There you go. And we went and played Oakland Tech, and they started roughhousing our guys, and the coach made me go sit in the bus because I was about to get beat down because I was the one white dude on the team. Exactly. So I felt it on the other side. Right. But see, but that would happen if it was a Latin um,
4: neighborhood or a Chinese neighborhood. It, it could happen. So, it's not a white problem or a black problem or a Chinese problem or a Latin problem. It is a heart problem. It's a human problem.
1: Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I think it, it, coming back full circle, it's important to recognize that each of us have our own distinct experiences yes. and that we have to hear each other. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what's happening right now that some would consider to be now the, the din, the noise of Colin Kaepernick's protest. And unfortunately, now that it's been politicized in the way that it has, the original point has been lost. Right. And suddenly now it's about black versus white, and I love America and you don't, and you're patriotic and I'm not, right. and I love the military and you're not. And the core message is getting lost here of the fact that there's still extreme frustration, there's a lot of fear out there, and I think a lot of it comes back to the fact that we're not hearing each other's stories, and I think part of that is because there's a fear that once we hear those stories, somebody in the room might have to confess absolutely, absolutely. and you know going back to my example earlier of the doctor coming in and cutting out part of the healthy flesh in the in, in the process of removing the decaying flesh in order to save the patient that sometimes healing is painful you know we, as as Paul tells us to work out our faith or our Christianity, that there is not just a one and done, as I said before. It is a process. And part of the process, I think, when it comes to the issue of racial reconciliation, is to recognize we're not going to get up on the dais, have a conversation to say, well, God bless us. What a great job we did, Pastor Gary. Now, everybody kiss and be friends. It doesn't work out like that. Right. We have to start the dialogue, keep the dialogue going, and understand that you're not going to eradicate 100 years, 200 years, 500 years of historical, systemic, systemic prejudice and racism and the pain that that has brought. Likewise, as I used the example earlier, today we've we seen, and, and this, by the way, has happened cyclically in this country. In the 1900s, The Italian community, Irish-Americans will tell you how they were horrifically discriminated against when they came in from Europe. In the 1890s, it was the Chinese turn. World War II, we know what we did with the Japanese in the internment camps during the Second World War. Some might argue that now in the 2000s, it seems to be the Hispanic community's turn. And a lot of it comes back to, we don't understand... We're not talking to each other. We're either talking over or past each other. And sometimes in an effort to try and speed about this process, we just want to get over it when you haven't heard me yet. This hurts. I think maybe what the important dialogue is for us to open up this raw, tender wound and say, we we need to hear this. We need to know what the experience is like so we, we can not only be more active at that process of not just light sharing and disseminating the gospel but also salt bringing about the preservative that our community that our that our country today needs and and I think in that we can begin to find that layer in which as we peel back the pain god can then put some of that healing salve on it and we can truly begin to see through relationships, as Pastor Brian said earlier, yes. begin to see the healing begin to take place. This is not an agenda that we have to you know, sit down and have a PowerPoint presentation and then we all say, okay, we're done. This is something that quite frankly, while we might be having this dialogue up here in the dais, it's those of you out there in the pews. It's those of you listening by radio right now. This work needs to start with you yeah. as individuals one by one. Let me just jump in real quick and say if you've uh, just tuned in a bit late and wondering what's going on here, you're in tune with KFAX San Francisco. We are broadcasting live here at the wonderful host church Faith Fellowship of San Leandro. And you've still got time to join us in studio for our live broadcast here, 577 Manor Boulevard, right off of Washington from the 880 in San Leandro. We'll be on the air up until seven o'clock tonight. And we're going to shortly begin to ask you to line up for questions and comments from our audience. We've got a microphone there in the center. So in fact, if some of you that have questions or comments for any members of our panel, or if we've left something out in this process of our dialogue this evening, you want to jump in with a comment. Let me invite you just line up right here down the center aisle and and grab that microphone without any fear. Anybody have any comments here on the dais at this stage in our discussions?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, I think getting back to the four of us being here as pastors and talking about multi-ethnic churches, um, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We're preachers of the Gospels to get sinners saved. I would say in general that every person who is a sinner that comes to get saved um, to use the term, and you defined it so well, but uh, racism, we all have some racism when we come to Christ. And it's our job as the pastors, as the leaders, to teach what the Word of God says, to demonstrate full acceptance, to demonstrate love and forgiveness and grace, um, to learn and grow through the diversity of the people that come to our churches. Um, I think in a demographic like this, I would fully expect your church to be diverse. I fully expect mine to be diverse, unless it's just a Latin-speaking or a Chinese-speaking church. So everybody that comes to Christ is a sinner. Racism is part of that sin, and it's our job to instruct them and be the example.
3: Can I also say... Unless Brian wants to speak or Flavio. Again, one of the things that brought me to this conviction about wanting to make sure that we have a a very clear historical uh, analysis and narrative around um, racism is because I think the terms are convoluted. I think, again, that unless you go back and do the research, uh, when you use the term racism versus the term prejudice or discrimination, the terms are defined differently and they have different impacts. And knowledgeable people who understand the historicity of this recognize the difference. They recognize that racism is is a power play on the part of those who have the ability to enforce legislatively policies that disadvantage people who don't have the ability to defend themselves. Uh, That prejudice is something that you and I can have individually in our heart against somebody else and discrimination is an act that we can commit individually against somebody else. When we go to talk about the history of blacks and white, that that is a unique history that has to be dealt with uniquely, not cast into the general pot of all of the human human experience. It's for this reason that that matter still stands today as problematic in our culture because the the structures of it are still there in many ways. And until we look at it and acknowledge it for what it is, we'll talk apples and oranges. And on an individual level, our church level, our congregations won't really be able to do what Craig is saying, understand one another. So what I would say to Brother Flavio is go back and, 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 and do the work on the terms because you don't want to fall short as a pastor not knowing the history on that level. You don't want to, in, in particular, with your African-American culture. Then one more thing I want to say about it is that when Brian was talking about the beauty of his relationship with his white friends, I've always had that. I've always had profound, deep relationships with non-blacks. On a personal level, you'll find that in the archives everywhere. Black people were able to love on Caucasians, even though they were their masters and rulers. And and even though you saw this bleeding over of families and children, your mulattoes, etc. We can love each other in close proximity and still recognize we got a bigger social problem.
1: At the end of the day, does a lot of this also come down to, particularly within the church, then... A demonstration of the depth or lack thereof of our relationship with Christ. Because let's face it, if I have really come into the fullness, and, I, and let me put in the disclaimer here nobody will ever fully understand grace. I don't know that we'll ever experience that in its totality, certainly until we get into heaven. I can explain it to you. But how a loving, pure, perfect, holy God would be willing to send his son to die on my behalf because he wants to walk in fellowship with me and do that while I'm still a sinner, I I don't quite fully understand that. And so if we don't fully... Have a, have that richness of our relationship, of understanding the totality of what it is to experience grace, that it's going to be difficult for us to extend grace That's and extend forgiveness to one another that will allow and foster those kinds of relationships that you're talking about
3: and conversations.
1: Absolutely. Let me also open up the phone lines: eight 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 F O R K F A X. If you want to jump in here with a comment or a question for our panel.
5: Yeah, I I would say, just to dovetail on this, the major disconnect um, in our horizontal relationships with each other across the ethnic divide is um, a lot of what I used to condemn and criticize our white siblings for and say that's racist. As I've grown, I think just a lot of that is just understanding our, our white siblings don't cognizantly think in terms of whiteness so I think the average white person doesn't think in terms of whiteness now as a minority as a black man I can't get away from it I am constantly in tune with my blackness I've got a 16 year old and 15 year old son and you know they're, they're learning how to drive well we have to have the talk with him here's what happens when you get pulled over here's what you do with your hands yes sir no sir don't don't express any form of anger. I, I don't have the luxury not to have that talk. It's just a part of what it means to be a black man. So it's sort of like what Dr. Corey Edwards says. It's like um, being a one armed man in a two armed society. If you have two arms, you're not aware of your two armness. But if you are a one armed person, you can't get away from that. And so that's the disconnect is I'm in tune with my ethnicity and my white brothers and sisters are not. And that will always handicap relationship.
1: Good perspective, Pastor. Let's get our first lady here in the uh, center aisle. You go ahead and pick up the microphone. Just give us your first name and uh, your question for our panelists.
6: I'm Teresa Wilkerson, and um, I want to thank you guys for having this discussion. It's very important. Um, I think there's a fallacy in the Bay Area that um, everybody's on the same page because of the ethnic diversity here, and that's simply not true, so thank you for that. Um, if we're in this era where there's a large and growing uh, population of unchurched people and a mindset whereby, uh, whereby people want a separation of church and state, how can we effect in, uh, effectively impact racism in places like the justice system, the education system, and also in government policy, where racism has lifelong and generational consequences. Our answer being Jesus to transform the hearts um, of men seemed to disable us uh, from our most powerful weapon, because we, we want to share the gospel, but we're talking about institutional racism here, not just your neighbor.
1: That's right, and it goes a lot deeper. We've barely even touched the surface of social justice here. Who would like to tackle that, that question?
4: Two words, get involved. Get involved. We need Christian politicians. We need Christian attorneys. We need Christian judges. We need Christian teachers. We need Christian police officers. Get involved. Infect the system. You need to infiltrate the system in order to affect it. And so I encourage people, get involved. Get involved. Make your voice heard. We live in the freest country in the world, and we have the opportunity to make a difference. Get in the system and change it from the inside out. Joseph did it. Daniel did it. It can be done. And it's frankly, it's happening. It is happening. It's a work in progress, but it's already happening. So get involved is what I'd
1: say. Let's go to a caller. We've got Lee in Palo Alto. Lee, come on in with your comment or question for our panelists.
7: Thanks for taking my call. I remember many years ago, there was a program on KFAX and the air just went dead for like 15 minutes. And when they came back, they said that they'd had the police there and there was somebody that they were looking for and they came into the station. And, you know, it was the first time that I really realized that, yes, black people, People or, or African American, our trick is nobody is really black. We're all shades of brown. Um, but African American people are are treated differently, stopped, questioned, whatever. And so I called uh, very politely the chief of police over in Fremont and spoke with him. And then I also spoke with the chief of police in Palo Alto and spoke with him because they have to do their jobs. But on the other hand, common sense must be used. And so my question would be, I wonder how many people in the listening audience actually followed up on that, because it's not acceptable. That doesn't mean that the police can't do their jobs. If somebody is African-American, fits the profile, yes, they must be stopped, questioned, whatever. If there was somebody that fit my description, I shouldn't be surprised if I was stopped and questioned. You want the police to do their jobs. But on the other hand, uh, I do know of a pastor whose sons were stopped while on a bicycle in Palo Alto because they didn't look like they fit in. And the pastor told me that when he drove his really fancy car, he gets stopped. But when he drove his beat up old truck because he used to like to do handyman type work around the church... He never got stopped because he looked like he was a worker. So, you know, I mean, we need to be aware and we need to speak up politely, but we need to speak up.
1: Good good observation, Lee. Thank you for your call. And that, that goes back to the heart of what we were saying earlier in sharing our stories. Just for background for our audience, we used to be located inside of a bank on the third floor of a bank, and apparently there had been a report of somebody breaking into the bank, and so the police came up to the third floor we were on the air. We had a pastor in the studio live on KFAX, the gentleman that is my engineer to this day, in the control room. And the police shuttered everybody into the hallway and put him in handcuffs because they just naturally assumed, so we assume, That because they were black and in the third floor of the building, that they must have been up to something nefarious as opposed to actually being inside of the radio station on the air. So, I mean, it's a small example of many greater examples out there of coming around to the point of understanding. A lot of people have stories to tell, and the stories are not being told, and as a result... The other group of us on the other side go along la di da and think, well, that, that whole thing, be, did they sign the Emancipation Proclamation? So what are they, what are they making noise about? All right, thank you, Lee. Our gentleman here next in the uh, center aisle, come on in with your uh, question. Go ahead, pick up the microphone if you would please. And
8: uh, uh, sure, go right ahead. Uh,
1: first, just a comment. I
8: guess I would ask everybody listening and everybody out there uh, in the audience, how do you get forgiveness when you've done something wrong to somebody? I think that's going to be at the heart of our question, and the reason being, uh, the speaker before the speaker before me uh, made some comments in reference to uh, governmental processes, laws, and those kind of things. Now, uh, I'm not African American, but if I were, and my parents had gone through what our country has uh, allowed for African Americans to go through, and various laws were enacted. Uh, that made it difficult for, if I was African American, for me to get a job and prosper. I'm just being honest. And I grow up in a neighborhood that's uh, maybe not as advantaged as some of the others. What are my chances to to do well? The, if laws are written that make it difficult or even make it so any portion of society is incarcerated, especially after being uh, workers or slaves. Uh, how do we correct that how How do we get in and say we 've made some mistakes now our government 's really good at that i don 't know if you, you watch, but we do go in and say we 've made a mistake let's let 's fix that or let 's change it well, changing in this case isn 't so easy because it 's just you can change ramifications of a law but how do you change it when you've really hurt someone? So I would just ask everybody to internalize some of the things and the challenges that every uh, one has to go through if they're newly immigrated here. And there were some statements in reference to uh, things being systematic, and I, I believe that they kind of are, whether they're on purpose or by accident. Like I said, our government does make some corrections. So I guess my point is this, if we've made some corrections, how do we apologize, and how do we try to reconcile and pay back like
5: biblically they would in the biblical times? How do we sir, do that?
8: Yes, sir. Good well, question. In, in
5: Luke chapter 19, you know, if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with the story, story of Zacchaeus, and you sang the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And, uh, but if you see it through a sociological lens, that is a profound uh, answer to your question. Zacchaeus is the head of what's called uh, – he's the chief tax collector – um, in Jericho. Uh, so he's not just a tax collector. Tax collectors, as we know, um, that was the lowest of the low. They lived off of extorting people. As the chief tax collector, he's actually the one responsible for putting in, archi- in being the architect of a system of injustice. Yep. So he has systemically designed a way to defraud people with people under him. He is a, he's the head of the Jericho cartel, to put it in mafia terms. Um, <laughs> What's interesting is Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Jesus shows up at his house and not once was he prompted by Jesus to do this, but Zacchaeus goes, you know what? I've wronged people. I've defrauded people off of a system of injustice and after, up to half my goods, I'm going to give to the poor and those whom I've defrauded, I'm going to restore it up to them. I think fourfold. And Jesus says today salvation has come to your household. So, for all of our gospel talk, what we never get around to is talking about an important subset of the gospel, which is not reparations, but restitution. The difference is reparations is governmentally legislated. Restitution is the voluntary acknowledgement because of the invasion of the gospel that I have wronged people and the making it right yes. by tangibly giving back. Yes. That is what we have to do. We, now, we wrestled with this in Memphis. I had a program. I said, our church is going to be a part of gospel restitution. It was We had several thousand people come in. We were about 70% white. And I said, there's a lot of black men out there who would love to get trained for ministry but don't have the resources to go to seminary. So every year I'd stand up in front of my mostly white body and I would say I need your money to send black men to school and we would raise 150k a year from mostly white checkbooks and these black men would get masters of divinity that is a form of gospel restitution that goes beyond just talking about it but it says, now, how can I tangibly
3: close the gap? We don't have those kinds of robust conversations. And right, to, that, please, Jesse. And, and that's what Martin Martin Luther King was saying. He was saying that where he was in the struggle of the civil rights movement, none of that was in place, it wasn't talked about, it wasn't even considered. And he knew that without that, we would never, ever advance beyond the strife and conflicts that we're dealing with now. The structures are still in place, it's still executed at levels that are very subtle the dialogue is often still there and this is why I say when the question was raised what can we do we need to get educated first we need to be clear on the history clear on the terminology clear on the strategies we need to so that we can talk advisedly about these kinds of things otherwise we won't make the progress in the church or outside of the church
5: and you've also got to teach I'll say this: as a black preacher See, the preacher in the black experience talked both spiritual and sociological. His his understanding of discipleship was biblically robust and comprehensive. So I have to teach minorities under my watch, when you get that extra two hundred dollars, don't buy the Jordans. You 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 give your ten percent, but let me teach you about investing. That's the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents has nothing to do with spiritual gifts, it's money. God puts money in our hand. He expects us to gain it and give it, but he also expects us to grow it. Mm -hmm. So our people aren't taught about investing. I can't tell you how many funerals I do. The person who died didn't even have insurance or leave enough money for the funeral. Forget Proverbs 13, 22. White people had to teach me that. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Well, in order to do that, I have to have the mindset of building wealth And come out of this victim's mindset that is endemic to my people. This is a part of spiritual formation and discipleship.
1: And isn't it fascinating that when we talk about reconciliation, be it on the horizontal or on the vertical plane, that they both start with two key points. Acknowledgement of sin and repenting. Think about that. Uh, thank you for your question. Let's move on to the next gentleman here. And for listeners at home, 888-367-5329-888-FORKFAX. forkfax 1st name and your question, please.
9: My name is Jacob. Um, and um, my question, kind of it's question and comment. Um, so I just want to thank everybody for this conversation and your dialogue. And I appreciate um, everyone's, everyone's just, um, input. Um, so... I'm Hispanic, um, but I've never experienced racism because I'm lighter Hispanic, um, I'm a white Hispanic, but my dad has experienced racism. Um, but I kind, of, I kind of felt like listening to the conversation that a lot of the conversation that's going on here right now, um, it seems it's, it's presupposing this critical race theory as being taught in our universities now that basically sees minorities as victims. Um, I don't see minorities as victims, That's right. right? Black people are not victims. That's right. uh, the strongest, Some of the strongest people I've met are African Americans and Hispanics, right? People who have in tragedy, in discrimination, in prejudice, right, have learned to be strong, right? Um, especially Christians. Um, so, I guess, isn't it wrong to constantly um, be looking at each other as if we're victims? Um, as if we're – I hope I'm making myself clear. Yeah.
4: I agree 100%. Again, this is where we're buying the ideology of the world yes, indeed. that divides us and makes us feel like f- victims. Well, I understand your argument. I
9: un- but I understand everybody else's. There is systemic racism in our society. Right And needs
3: to be dealt with so objectively, you do recognize uh, victimhood, but what you are stating is not mutually exclusive. Victims can be strong, right, so we have been strong, and, and by the way, your own uh, ethnicity has also suffered uh, victimization as well the The records are clear on that that you may not have is an anecdotal story it 's not the totality of the Hispanic culture of the Mexican culture, et etc. They have been there as well. The point being is victimization is an objective reality. It's not a subjective thing. It's a fact, but it doesn't change the fact that people can be strong, they can fight, they can overcome it. That is the history of African-American people. But the conversation is still going to be along the lines of, mistreatment, injustice, discrimination, racism until the systemic situation that 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 perpetuates it is dealt with. And hold on for a second. You want to be careful that you are not again brought brushing it from your perspective because you will not be sympathizing with the African American who is more acutely aware of it than yourself. So be very careful about it.
1: And I think that the terminology here again we don't want to get caught up in this victimization we hear a lot within the, the general success secular society at the end of the day in more Christian terms we might see that say that we've been sinned against
3: sure that's right that's exactly
1: right excellent term all right thank you for your question let's move on to uh, our next guest here first name and uh, your question for our panel please
3: yes
10: hi my name is Carolyn and I did have something to say about um, racism I totally agree with most of what is said The only thing is we still are experiencing slavery in this country. It has not ended. My mother taught me that there's nothing new under the sun. It's, you know, it's biblical. And there is nothing new. It's just changed form. Now we have the prison industrial complex. That's another form of racism. We had Jim Crow. We had, uh, remember the chain gang? Slavery never ended. It's just changed forms. The devil has the same strategies and tactics that he had. So my question to you is, well, my main concern is why are we still not, as churches, we're not coming together, putting our finances together and making demands on the society? We have too many churches in the Bay Area. Every Monday morning, we put billions, I think, maybe millions of dollars in banks, and yet our kids don't have jobs, our kids aren't being trained. People are struggling, they're losing their homes. We're losing people because they have to move out of the Bay Area, because they can't afford the high rents. But the churches say nothing. I don't know what we can do I prayed about it many, many times, but yet my people are still leaving. So I don't understand. But we well, I, do still have slavery in this country. And I, I think part of that.
1: what you're what you're getting to is the notion as well. And we've just this is going to be a conversation for another program to be sure. The whole issue of social justice that the church struggles with as well. But you know, it, it's it's baby steps. I think at the end of the day. Yes. Um, getting us to recognize that there's a problem in the first place when such a large percentage of the church goes la-di-da about their business on Sunday morning and doesn't even recognize that there's a problem or feels because we're diverse, therefore we're reconciled. So it's like peeling back the layers of an onion, I think. Uh, And I would that we could be adept enough to be able to tackle all of these issues well simultaneously. And the problem is we're not succeeding in any of them. I think we are tackling some of them. I I would uh, tag along with what Brian
3: was saying about teaching our members how to be uh, fiscally responsible. We do that in our own church. Uh, And it's not simply because we see the the problems in the African American community. I'm definitely sensitive to that. But we have a diverse congregation and we're teaching our young people how to mind their own business, if you know that as a business term coming up out of Rich Dad Poor Dad. Uh, So we have Uh, uh, economic advisors, financial service advisors, and we teach classes on how to handle your money in order for you to liberate yourself from the economic strains that come with whatever the social atmosphere or economic atmosphere is. I think Christians ought to be able to do that as well. That's going to contribute to your freedom. If you can handle your money, and see its growth and and, and, and be responsible about it uh, in terms of stewardship, you're going to live a better life. Would you guys all agree with that? Right. Amen. And so from that standpoint then, from the standpoint of freedom of, of, of obedience and the stewardship of money, then we can begin to tackle those other issues that Craig is talking about. And I think the church does do that in part. So I wouldn't say that the church is totally missing. You'll, you'll find churches that are very much robust in handling their money in terms of how to give to God. God, how to give to the culture or the society, and then also how to make sure that the children down the line get some money, because I believe in that completely. Having eight kids, I had to make sure, you know, they had their little inheritance when they checked out, you know. That's biblical. That's what we should do. But as I was listening to Brian saying that, I was saying, yeah, but there was some history but behind us, that didn't allow the African-American community to have even that kind of vision. And so you have to know how impactful the history has been on our ability to have those broad expectations and hopes. They're there, I think, for our community in the Bay Area, but not every community around the nation.
10: Yes, I, I was uh, thinking about my own family when, you know, my great-grandfather, who was a slave master's child, who sold him. When he was seven years old, how he had accumulated a lot of property, was very wealthy, and they took the property away from him. All that. So he couldn't give us an inheritance because he was thrown off his land for no reason. To this day, that land does not have clear title.
1: See, and, and the, the irony is that goes back to my point earlier about we need to start telling our stories so we can learn from this. Let's get to another caller here. We've got Jocelyn in Vallejo. Jocelyn, come on in with your question for our panelists. Hello? Yes, go right ahead, Jocelyn. You're on the oh, air.
11: Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this dialogue this evening um, and thank all of you gentlemen and, and the uh, audience there. Um, some Some wonderful conversation. Um, I want to thank Dr. Costanz for um, his response um, to our Hispanic brother there to um, try to uh, inform him that there's a different history with the slavery that was uh, experienced here in America. Um, And I also appreciated the uh, sister who just spoke, because uh, uh, me too. My family, um, on one side, um, great-grandfather was, Uh, born into slavery, ended when he was about six or seven years old, he accumulated a great deal of land and wealth, which he was able to pass down to his children by the grace of God. He was able to to, uh, retain that land and property. However, on another side of the family, land was stolen, and the family was run out of the town. And so that, uh, you know, being a result of not slavery itself, but Jim Crow that came after slavery. After slavery, there was reconstruction. There was a great boom for black people in this country, but that progress was not anticipated. And so then we were oppressed and suppressed, and uh, racial uh, institutions and systems were set in place, mainly Jim Crow. And then we moved on to segregation and separate but equal and all the other uh, things that have happened. And then I just want to conclude by recommending a, a wonderful book, Uh, Race, Religion, and Racism by Dr. Frederick Casey Price, and it goes into the history uh, of the racial institutions um, and how it's just systemic. And, and, and thank God that the church is addressing this, because if we can't find a solution, how can we help the world and the larger society in which we, do, we dwell? How, Jesus said, by this will you know that they're, you're my disciples because you have loved one for another. So uh, we do need to, you know, have this dialogue in the church. Healing needs to come in, into our midst so that we can demonstrate that to the world. We can't help them if we're uh, injured ourselves.
1: All right, thank you. Very good point. Appreciate your call there. Pastor Gary, let me turn to you. This, her comment kind of goes back core to what we were talking about earlier, this notion that we have to model the love. You spoke of your relationship with your lead senior or co-pastor. Um, the idea that we just don't talk about it. We have to live it out. And as we live it out in front of others, people will begin to capture the idea that this is actually possible.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the experience that we've had over the last 30 years and what we've seen in this church. Um, You know, he's my best friend. He's African-American. My wife is Hispanic and black. Uh, We have openings in every leadership position of every kind of people group. And so we say, hey, you're welcome here. You're accepted here. There's no favoritism. Uh, We treat everybody according to how your gifts are. And you're welcome at Faith Fellowship. We're going to love you. We're going to hug you. We're going to kiss you. I'm going to teach you the word. When you're wrong, you're wrong. It's not because you're white, not because you're black. It's because it's what the word says. And and you need to get in line with that. So
12: that's what it is.
6: Amen.
1: All right, uh, sir, your first name and your question, please.
12: Don Grundemann and I wanted to thank everyone for having this excellent discussion. So you were reaching out to the individuals in the audience, both here and via the radio, for what they can do in the expression of racism as they encounter it in our society, how to combat that within themselves and and within their families. But I had one there was a comment earlier regarding institutional racism. That the term was used. So I wanted to get the panel's perspectives on Personally, I consider that outside of the walls of this church, there are extremely powerful groups who, to me, have a vested interest in not only continuing institutional racism or racism throughout society, but enhancing it and and, uh, expanding it to the greatest degree that they can. And I go back in history very quickly that, uh, in my opinion, one of those organizations, the spirit that we see on the surface is called Planned Parenthood. Because they were founded not on... The cover story was that they were founded to help women, but the real story is that they were founded on the principle of eugenics and that they were to attack, uh, as you mentioned, Irish at that time, but they were primarily to attack non-white citizens at at that time, and in my opinion, that continues to this moment. And so when we walk out of the church, we will be dealing with racism in our individual lives, but how would the um, panel members express how can we fight this institutional racism which in my view is extremely powerful and which is that power is enhancing the racial boiling points outside of this church to continue this racism because we all are friends here we can battle it here but when we step outside the door we've got these extremely powerful people fantastically powerful who have a vested interest in continuing this problem and thwarting all the efforts of everyone in here
1: And and thank you for your question, Don. And the irony is that, that the core reason why that happens is the same reason it's always happened, power and money. And you're absolutely right in pointing out that the very foundation upon which Planned Parenthood was constructed was on the science of eugenics. Margaret Sanger was praised by Adolf Hitler in the 1930s for the work that she had done on this very topic. And to this day, it is an active strategy by Planned Parenthood to locate Planned Parenthood clinics in minority communities... And in poor communities. And of course they'll tell you as well we're trying to make sure the services are convenient. Yeah. Let's talk about this. I don't want to get too far afield because it could be a rabbit trail that could take us 10 hours down the road and we've got 15 minutes to go in the broadcast tonight. But there are these issues too that beyond getting judgment begins in the house of the Lord so beyond getting our own house in order as part of that salt and light process do we not also need to be vocal in terms of Pointing out, as Don is, when we see institutionalized race, uh, racism taking place in our country today.
5: Yeah, vocal is not enough. So you're exactly right. Um, you know, we we had uh, some dear friends of ours uh, over at the house the other uh, the other week. Uh, one of them happens. It's it's two married women. One of them happens to be African American, and she is she assumed we were into Planned Parenthood, and I simply responded to her. I says, listen, I mean, just as a black person, why, why any black person would support that, and I'm not even putting Jesus in the mix of it, right. Right. When, you st- when you study the history of it, is beyond me. But vocal is not enough. And let me, let me tell you why. The New Testament approach to all of this, their version of it, there, there was archaic forms of abortion. But really, it was infanticide, where they would literally take babies and hurl them over the walls of the city. And these babies would die on impact, and some of them would actually uh, survive. Yeah. It was Christians who actually understood it as, an, as a joyful obligation to come along and provide a tangible solutions, uh, solutions to unwanted children. I mean, James writes, pure and undefiled religion is this – So I don't think we as Christians, and and I'm telling you something, my my wife and I even wrestle with this. Um, We don't necessarily feel called to adopt, but we do feel as if we don't have an out on this at all. So we actually write checks to help people uh, adopt. I I think everybody, if if I understand James correctly, that one of the indicator lights that the kingdom is really in me, then I'm not just concerned with my own kids' college funds. I'm also concerned with um, babies who are coming into this world and coming alongside of moms and and offering and providing real solutions. But that care has got to be comprehensive. As Dr. Tony Evans says, from the womb to the tomb. So we don't just care about those in the womb, but we've got to create a scenario where they're educated well, where they're given equal opportunities. It's got to be
1: comprehensive. All right. Thank you very much for your question. Let's pass on uh, next to our Next questionnaire here. Your first name and your question for our panel, please.
13: Yes, I'm Suzanne, a long-term member of Faith Fellowship. What Pastor always says here is when you first come as a visitor, you're a visitor. When you return, you're family. Mm. So that's our philosophy. That's awesome. So um, I, I want to talk about reconciliation. And <clears throat> basically, in order to have any kind of relationship with another person, first, you have to be able to accept them where they're at. First. You have to be able to listen and acknowledge their experience that they're telling you. You can't filter that, try to alter that, and try to tell them how that is not quite the way things are.
1: Or dismiss it, yeah. That,
13: that, that doesn't work. And people need to be heard They're validated by you hearing them. doesn't mean you agreed agreed with everything they said, but they have to be heard. That's how we show respect. If I've been attacked by a beehive as a child, you're not going to talk me into going and seeing your beehives. I'm sorry. (laughs) I won't go because I already know what can happen when they get out of control. You don't. Maybe you've never been stung. Maybe you've been stung one time and you put some... Okay, and that goes with all of us. We know our experiences. Our experiences have shaped us and scarred us in some ways. Depending on our progress with the Lord, some of those areas are healed. Some are not. That's why we get in arguments. Mm-hmm. Because you're seeing it because of your experience. And I'm telling you, that's not my experience. I don't have the freedom to do what you just did. So I... I don't want to hear that. That's not real to me. And I think only Christ now do we have to go back to the Lord because I would not care enough about people to even do what I'm saying if it wasn't for the Lord. I would not care. Let's just be honest. Be honest. And I wouldn't, <clears throat> I wouldn't take the time, the energy, the chance to be offended. And we have to get over offense. We have to get over offense. It's no big deal. You make a big deal of the offense by repeating it, by thinking about it, by telling other people about it. It could just be dismissed when it happens if we would have that mindset. We can't just get hung up. They walked past me and didn't acknowledge me. Oh, I know they meant me when they said that. We have to get. We should get past that. But it. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is the key. And all of this is not possible unless we are getting close to God. That's why I come to a church. That's why I go back to a place a second time. If I sense the Holy Spirit is moving, then I know good things are happening. And that's why each one of you can be so valuable because you've let the Holy Spirit guide you. It's a privilege to be here and be part of this.
1: Thank you so much. And, you know, at at the end of the day, as we're we're beginning to wind down our conversation tonight, at the end of the day, we keep, keep coming back full circle to one key point again and again and again, and that is that the genesis and the driving force behind racism is sin, and that the only way that we're going to bring about healing between each other and along the horizontal is to acknowledge that, repent of that, ask for forgiveness, and then restitution. I like what Pastor Brian said earlier. You know, um, in the form of restitution that we do back unto God, our faith without works is dead, that we begin to then serve the Lord, not to be saved, but because of our salvation. And I think equally, if we recognize that we have sinned against one another... And we acknowledge that sin and we repent that some form of restitution as acknowledgement of the change and the forgiveness that has transpired is actually real and alive and not just wagging lips and flapping tongues. Amen. I want to give each of our panelists a moment before we wrap up our program tonight to share some closing thoughts. And we're going to end with Pastor Gary Mortero, who has been such a gracious host tonight. So let me start first with Pastor Jesse. Now, Jesse, I'm going to give you about a minute. Anything that you don't get through, uh, folks, tune in Monday night. It gets two solid hours. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor guest Jesse can stand. No, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it.
3: I, uh, I'm I'm hoping that this can be extended as a dialogue and conversation, and in between now, yeah, and in between now and the next time, that we would all be more prepared. Um, I find that we hit walls when we talk with people about matters this sensitive where we haven't done the homework. And I just, I repeat, uh, our echo, what Craig said is that we need to understand each other. We need to understand each other and it will, it'll go a long ways. I'm looking forward to it.
1: All right. Thank you, Pastor Jesse. Let me turn next to Pastor Brian Loritz with a closing comment.
5: Yeah. You know, I look out and I go, um, how did we end up in this mess here in America? Well, it happened by centuries of intentional, well-thought-out, strategized planning. You won't undo it organically. So That's what baffles me about people. We, we, we have inherited something that has been strategically planned, and we just want, want it to organically go away. So you have to multiply the intentionality that God is here by a thousand. And just like Jesus intentionally stopped in Samaria when Jews weren't doing that, to have a conversation with someone who looked different and saw it different than him, the onus is on each of us as image bearers of God to take intentional steps to our own proverbial Samaria and to get in relationship with people who just see it differently than you. Amen.
1: (laughs) Pastor Flavio Cavrahallo, a closing comment, please.
4: I think this was a great step tonight towards reconciliation and growth. Communication relationships is where it's at. And I end with what I started, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The answer is the gospel.
1: Amen. Amen. Finally, our host pastor, who's been so gracious for opening his home to all of us tonight, Pastor Gary Mortara. Yeah, again, I'm going to
2: go back to us as leaders and demonstrating it, and I'm thinking of the church again in Antioch in Acts 13 where you know there were prophets and teachers and Paul and Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manny. And, you know, they're all racially different, And yet they were a leadership team, and they worshiped God, and the Spirit of God moved in their midst. And so that's what we try to do here. One of the things I tell our people every week is hug five people that have a different skin color than you. So we kind of make them get out of their comfort zone and hug somebody that doesn't look like you. So
1: it's leadership. Amen. Well, we have spent a solid two hours here conversing, I hope at certain levels, reasoning together, exploring each other's differences, each other's challenges, hearing some of our stories, hopefully at the very least to begin the dialogue today. Sadly, we kind of think, well, the government, they're going to pass a law, they're going to fix everything. Somebody surely in Washington, D.C. will come up with an answer. I think if there's been a consistent theme throughout tonight's Conversation That is that it begins with us and that if the church of all who has first and foremost experienced reconciliation with God, very God creator of the universe, that if we cannot model to each other what reconciliation looks like based on the experience that we've had in reconciliation on the on the horizontal plane, then the world is without hope. But the good news is that he died for us while we were yet sinners. And that if we capture this process of acknowledgement and repentance, we can start the conversation. Maybe this Thanksgiving, one week from tonight, you get that conversation started around the dinner table. Now, some of you are thinking, my family, are you kidding me? We fight when we say pass the gravy. But let me encourage you, just get the dialogue started. Start sharing each other's stories and make this a point of prayer. We're going to do more of these events. Did you enjoy yourself tonight? We want to thank you so much, both the audience at home and those of you here at Faith Fellowship of San Leandro for being with us this evening. Thanks so much, too, to uh, everybody that made this possible. Again, Pastor Gary Martera. our thanks to Pastor Jesse Gustand, Pastor Flavio Carvajalo, and Pastor Brian Loritz. A nice round for our panel, if you would, please. We're going to put the wraps on this edition of Lifeline. And as we always say, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get on out there and share it. Till next time, so long.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved